This show is brought to you in part by the University of Advancing Technology. UAT is a unique technology-infused private college that was founded by a geek for other geeks. Our mission is to educate students in the fields of advancing technology to become innovators of the future. UAT's campus culture is devoted to continually nurturing a thriving geek community where everyone's personal lives and professional aspirations revolve around technology. The beginning of the 21st century is an exciting time to be in the technology community. Current subjects of ongoing research and scholarship at UAT include robotics and embedded systems, artificial life programming, information and network security, game development, and other areas of advanced technology. Check them out on the web at www.uat.edu. Shoutcast streaming provided by Versus the World Productions, www.vtwproductions.com. I am Gnomewise. I am Gonora. I am Iolite. I am Daxa. I am Grail. And I am Versus You. I am Versus You. And I am Versus You. I am Versus You. And I'm Versus You. Casually Hardcore. Sundays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. GMT. Only on vtwproductions.com. Hey guys! How's everybody? <laughs> All right, well, you probably know our next panelist from his work on the Guild as, you know, Fox, right? Or Evil Will Wheaton from Big Bang Theory. <laughs> Going back a little farther, Wesley Crusher from Star Trek. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, well, please welcome to the stage, Will Wheaton. Thank you. Thanks. Can everybody hear me? Okay. You guys... You know, there's always one, and it's usually John Scalzi. Um, thanks. You guys always make me feel a lot cooler than I am, and it, uh, that really, it really means a lot to me. Um, I'm real excited to tell you stories tonight. Um, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm, I'm going to read to you, uh, in dramatic performance fashion, a story that I'm incredibly proud of that, as it turned out, played a significant role in my development as a writer. Um, then I'm going to uh, share with you my reflections of uh, the first season spectacular Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Justice, um, uh, with visual assistance. And then finally, um, I have been asked for almost two years to finish Memories of the Future Volume 2, and uh, I have some excerpts from Memories of the Future Volume 2 that I'm going to share with you. Um, uh, and I think, it, I think we will all have a lovely time together. The story that I am going to tell you in dramatic fashion is, uh, is my entry in the chapbook, The Clash of the Geeks. If you were here last year and you came to Super, super Happy Fun Times? Super happy. super happy Fun Times with Will and John, your eyes may have been permanently scarred <laughs> with an image quite similar to this one. <clears throat> uh, this is, uh, this is uh, me 
um, wearing a clown sweater and, uh, and a pair of hot pants, <laughs> wielding a spear. So, all right, all of that makes sense. <laughs> but I am riding a unicorn Pegasus kitten, and I am apparently locked in some kind of battle with John Scalzi, who is an orc. If you're listening online, you can find this at clashofthegeeks.com or unicornpegasuskitten.com. Or if you Google for unicorn pegasus kitten, and uh, leave safe search on. <laughs> then you can see it. So John had this idea, and the idea was that we would write fan fiction. With everything that implies. <laughs> fan fiction to support what the fuck is happening in this picture. Because for the longest time, no, no one knew. Everyone just knew that whatever it was, it was wrong. <laughs> we sold this as a chap book that was a, a pay what you want, uh, even the low, low price of free, uh, with donations going to the Lupus Society of America. Because um, uh, a, a, a good friend of ours, a, a mutual publisher of ours, uh, his wife has lupus, and uh, turns out that one of my friend's wives has lupus. I didn't know because um, I'm a bad friend. And uh, and and we've. Uh, do you know how much money we've raised? Uh, over twenty-five thousand dollars. We've raised over twenty-five thousand dollars. <laughs> Because as it turns out, lupus really sucks. Um, but, but it's one of those things that you don't really know about until you know somebody who has it. So um, uh, this is my entry in, in the uh, uh, epic story, Clash of the Geeks. It is called The Last Unicorn, Pegasus Kitten. <laughs> if you have uh, this image on your smartphones, or someone near you does, you may wish to refer to it from time to time as it helps. <clears throat> this is my version of what the hell is going on in this picture. Oh, and I have to do this. <clears throat> it's not enough that it's a thousand degrees here. It has to be zero humidity, too. <clears throat> The path was narrow, and small volcanic pebbles threatened to slip from his, slip his feet four words in, and I've already messed up. Let's back up and start over again. <clears throat> in true fan fiction style. And then Picard fucked Riker. <clears throat> fucked the beard right off his face. The show gets a little blue. <laughs> and incidentally, if you have devices for recording and sharing this, you have my permission to do that under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike License. <clears throat> and now, Men in Black device. <laughs> the Last Unicorn. Pegasus Kitten. By me, Will Wheaton. The path was narrow and small volcanic pebbles threatened to slip his feet from beneath him at every twist and turn, throwing him down the side of the fire spire mountains. But Islak was not afraid. He was, don't you start. <laughs> we have a long way to go. 
he was focused on his mission. The fate of his entire Skalzork clan resting on his leathery green shoulders and falling a thousand feet down the side of a mountain would be a welcome death should he fail to defeat the wee tin he knew waited for him in the Bent Claw Pass. This is your task, his master Wreck told him. Mount Crusher is waking, and the eggs will soon blast into the sky. Whoever leads the hatchlings away will command them, and if not us, then the vile wee tins will. <laughs> he spat on the ground and cursed under his breath. We have waited many years for this hatching, and you are our chosen rider. You are our last and best hope, my apprentice. You are our only hope. <laughs> you can do it, Mary Sue. He put his giant hands on Islak's shoulders and fixed him with a serious gaze. You are our future. Islak heard a low, angry rumble as if the mountains themselves were growling at him. He pressed himself against the uphill side and held onto a sharp outcropping until the shaking passed. A lesser warrior would be frightened, he thought, but he was not afraid. He looked out across the valley and spied his once-proud village. The wall around it was broken and crumbling from years of unprovoked wee-tin attacks. The forest he explored as a child was a black tangle of scorched earth and charred logs that once were trees. The pen where the unicorn pegasus kittens once lived <laughs> was empty. Though he could see his brothers and sisters, tiny specks that appeared black from this distance, moving around as they prepared it for his triumphant return. He pulled his hand away from the rocks and saw that it was bleeding from his grip. He smiled without humor and continued his journey up the mountain. He made camp without a fire in a mostly level alcove beneath the mouth of the Bent Claw Pass and ate a meal of uncooked meat until he could eat no more, threw what was left over the side of the mountain. This was a traditional ritual the night before a battle in the Bent Claw Pass, and he'd taken care to save enough, going hungry on the second day of his journey to perform it. On the fifth day, you will be near the Bent Claw Pass, Wreck had said. And you are to eat until you are full, throwing the rest off the mountain. Why? <laughs> That's what the Skull's Orc sounds like. <laughs> Any orc who wasted food would be punished severely. It is a tribute to those who have fought and fallen before you to feed their spirits. It is also to remind you of the importance of your task. You will not need food for the journey home because you will make it on winged back or you will not make it at all. Islak hefted the meat in his hand and squeezed it until the blood began to ooze out just as, just as it had earlier in the day. He thought of all the great warriors who had come here before him and the few who had returned, but he was not afraid. He felt exhilarated. He would be victorious. Islak would save his people. He bellowed, Fluffy Bacon! 
and threw the meat with all his might. He watched a thin trail of spray follow it in an arc as it disappeared into the darkness down the side of the mountain. When he was certain that it was gone and the spirits of his ancestors had been fed, he thanked them for their sacrifice and begged them to guide him in the coming battle. He placed his axe and shield on a path, lay down next to them on the hard ground, and waited for sleep to arrive. It came slowly, as if it, too, had to climb the mountain to reach him. In the dream, he was a boy, and Wreck was barely a man. It was choosing day, the day of choosing, when the chosen was choosed. <laughs> and he stood in the pen with the other boys who had just come of age. A score of unicorn Pegasus kittens, still in their cages, waited to be released. It is choosing day! Wreck cried. Choosing day! They replied in unison, All but one of you will fall! One of you will be chosen to be the rider! Be brave! Do not be afraid! You are warriors! Warriors! They bellowed in small voices that had yet to mature but did not tremble. Wreck lifted his axe high and brought it down on the chain, dropping the gates and releasing the unicorn Pegasus kittens. Just in case you've forgotten. (laughs) They burst from their cages, howling and caterwauling, and took to the sky, nearly blocking out the sun as they circled above. All around him, other boys fell to the ground. Islak looked to his left and saw his childhood friend, Cal. You will be chosen, Izzy. As Cal spoke, his face split open, spilling blood down his chest. Spinning to his left, he faced his twin brother, Mac, whose chest was torn open. We all knew it would be you, Izzy, he said, tearing his heart from his chest. It was always going to be you. (laughs) It's all for you, Damien! He held his heart aloft and bellowed, Fluffy Bacon! And threw it into the sky, where it was caught mid-dive by a unicorn Pegasus kitten who landed at Islak's feet. The world went silent, but for the sound of Mac's still beating heart. Like you do in fan fiction. He looked back at Mac and saw that he had become a baby, held by his mother who sobbed. He looked away and found himself on the mountain, now a man, surrounded by the bodies of those who were not chosen. Their blood ran like a river down the path and over the side. He reached out to touch it, but it flowed away from him. His father walked out of the Bent Claw Pass atop the now raging torrent of blood. You are chosen, my son, he said, more softly than he ever spoke in life. It is a great honor for our family and a terrible price for us to pay. Do not forget this day. Do not forget your brother. I am not afraid, father, he said in a voice he hadn't heard since he was a child. Before his father could reply, the blood river surged and frothed and carried him over the edge. 
Islak ran to the edge of the path, the blood spreading before him, never touching him, and looked over into darkness. The sound of Mac's heartbeat echoed up the steep basalt cliff. Islak woke from the dream with a start, covered in a greasy sheen of cold Skalzork sweat, his own heartbeat pounding in his ears, a visceral reminder of Max. I am not afraid. I am not afraid. I am not afraid, he spoke to the wind as it whipped up the mountain and swirled dust all around them. The wind spoke back with the voice of a unicorn pegasus kitten, distant and mournful. Islak wrapped his arms around himself and leaned up against the rock wall of the alcove. Sleep did not claim him again that night, and for that, he was grateful. Dawn broke over the valley, casting red and gold light across his village. Did I say across? I said across. <laughs> I'm opposed to say across. <laughs> it's almost like I said across on purpose. Dawn broke over the valley, casting red and gold light across his village and the destruction around it. Islak picked up his axe and shield and did his morning exercises. He heard Rex's voice commanding and correcting him, as it had since choosing day. His axe was an extension of his arm, his shield light and ready. His exercises completed, he looked back at his village. A thin line of smoke climbed out of the chimney from one of the few houses that had not been destroyed in the last attack. I will be home soon, he said. He turned and began to climb the twisting, narrow path toward the Bent Claw Pass. As day neared its end, the ground beneath his feet began to level out, and the tall walls around him grew steadily farther apart until he knew he had reached his destination. Mount Crusher belched smoke into the sky, covering the Crusher Valley with a gray blanket. For those of you who do not have the benefit of reading the word, it is spelled K-R-U-Z-H-Y-I-R-E. <laughs> Very much like Fluffy, it is spelled exactly the way it sounds. Dark red lava ran down its sides, and the air smelled of sulfur, and something he could not identify, but knew he would remember for the rest of his life. There was a beating of wings, an angry scream, and the wee tin rider burst through the cloud, climbing upward above him. The smoke twirl, swirled in... <laughs> the smoke swirled in tight, spiraling eddies and trailed behind him as he raced into the sky. He wore the traditional armor of the wee tins, bright red shoulder pads... A mask of terror and horror painted across the chest. <laughs> the sheer wrongness of the armor was something taught to all Skull's Orc warriors. But all the lessons and tests and drawings he had seen did not prepare him for just how disgusting and horrifying it was when seen with his own eyes but he refused to look away. The wee tin rider circled twice, then dove toward him. I am not afraid, Islak said defiantly. He gripped his axe and planted his feet. The wee tin rider pulled up on the reins and his mouth... 
the wee tin rider pulled up on the reins and his mount hissed. Roar! Piffed! <laughs> Again, spelled exactly the way it sounds. It beat its wings, blowing dust and stink into Islak's face. He turned away and blinked until his vision is cleared. When he turned back, the wee tin had dismounted and stood next to his unicorn pegasus kitten, stroking its fur. <laughs> Why are you here, Skalzork? he demanded. Mount Krushar awakens, and the hatch is coming. I am here to battle you for the last unicorn pegasus kitten, as is the tradition between our people. The wee tin laughed a deep, throaty, mocking sound that stirred anger in Islak's belly. You mean you are here to die like those who came before you. Before Islak could respond, the ground beneath them shook violently, knocking them both off their feet. A mighty cloud of ash exploded from Mount Crusher and turned the sky black. Pyroclastic lightning flashed and forked across and through it like it does in fan fiction. <laughs> the hatch begins! Islak cried, leaping to his feet and charging the wee tin. Fluffy bacon! That is spelled G-H-L-A-G apostrophe space G-H-E-E B-A-A with a hat on it K-U-N. <laughs> this is canonical, so don't spell it wrong on the internet <laughs> or people might let you know of their opinions. In two villages, in two valleys, bound by culture and history, but divided by mountains and an enmity so ancient its origins had long been forgotten, elders looked into the darkening skies as the earth beneath them shook. Wreck folded his arms across his chest and watched the lightning crackle through the spreading cloud. It has begun. He looked around to confirm he was alone. And he added under his breath, Fight well, Islak the Chosen, so that we may see another day. He spit on the ground. The wee tin rolled to one side and stopped against his mount. He tucked his feet beneath him and sprung up in one fluid motion, pulling a spear out of his saddle. Islak's momentum carried him past too quickly to swing his axe. He stopped and turned, ready for another attack. The wee tin was waiting for him, arm cocked, spear at the ready. The wee tin is left-handed, by the way. <laughs> like all awesome people. <laughs> he threw with such speed and precision, Islak almost did not get his shield raised in time. He threw with such power, the spear's tip pushed through the ironwood and into Islak's forearm. The pain was sharp and instant, and Islak did his best to mask his yelp with a roar. The spear tore out of his flesh as he threw his now useless shield to the ground. 
Skull's orc war cries are hell on the throat. <laughs> Come on, orc, the wee tin sneered. I'll make your death quick. He reached into his saddle and drew a jagged sword covered with sharp barbs along both sides. My woman waits for my return. She is hungry, and only I can sate her. <laughs> then Wesley fucked Robin Leffler. The end. <laughs> the ground beneath them shook and they both felt the heat of the blast as bright red magma flew into the sky, darkening as it fell to the ground. Then your woman will starve, Islak growled, and advanced more carefully this time. The Wee Tin met him, sword drawn, and they fought. Steel clashed against steel as the mountains around them rumbled and a wicked heavy metal soundtrack played. The unicorn Pegasus kitten, sensing the hatch, began to flick its tail. It bared its teeth and released a low, droning call. The wee tin was strong and fast. He swung his sword with precision, and Islak struggled to deflect his blows. The wee tin drove Islak back, away from the unicorn Pegasus kitten, toward the Crusher Valley side of the pass. The wee tin's sword cut into his arms and shoulders, and the wee tin's eyes grew wild with bloodlust and mania. The wee tin bellowed as he drew his sword back and thrust it toward Islak in a killing blow. Islak cried, deflecting some but not all of the blow with his axe handle. A deep gash opened up on his side. The rider countered his momentum, drawing himself and his sword back. Before he could strike anew, Islak swung his axe with all his might. The wee tin caught the head with his sword and pulled Islak toward him with an evil grin. Things are looking bad for the Skalzorks, guys. Them Duke boys better hope the Skalzorks come up with a way to fight the Wheatons, or else find some old unicorn Pegasus kitten eggs in Uncle Jesse's barn they didn't know about. <laughs> kind of, kind of broke the mood there. Like you do in fan fiction. As Islak was yanked forward, he saw his shield on the ground, just passed into one side of the Wee Tin Rider. Using all of his training, the thousands of hours across the years with Wreck ruthlessly, pitilessly, relentlessly testing and drilling him, the years spent without friends, only training, always training, the burden of being chosen at the cost of his only brother. He flexed his powerful leg muscles, and drove the rider toward it. Knocked off balance, and with his momentum against him, the rider was pushed easily. Islak hooked his foot beneath the rider's leg and drove him to the ground. There was a muffled crunch as the shield broke beneath their combined weight. The smile on the rider's face vanished. The mania in his eyes turned to surprise. Islak lifted himself off of him and stood over him. The entire head of the rider's own spear stuck out from his chest, pushing the evil grin on his armor into a twisted and even more grotesque mask. 
Blood gurgled in the rider's mouth, matching the blood that covered the spear and flowed down across him. He gasped through foaming bloody spittle and clutched at it frantically. Islak crouched down and placed his face close to the dying rider's ear. You can't has. <laughs> he whispered softly. Not yours. My favorite thing I have ever written in my life. He left the rider and walked to the unicorn Pegasus kitten. Its bright green eyes shone with reflected flashes of lightning and fireballs. He stroked the fur at its neck and unbuckled its saddle. You will never wear a saddle again. You are no longer a slave. You are now a companion. The unicorn Pegasus kitten, for the moment, the last of its kind, began to purr. Islak climbed onto its back and coaxed it into flight. They flew together into the mouth of the volcano as the eggs began to burst into the sky. As they reached their zenith, they burst open in a spreading of wings and kicking of hooves. The shells fell to the ground and the hatchlings began to fly. Five, then ten, then a dozen, then two dozen, then a swarm. Islak flew around them all through the smoke and fire, the unicorn Pegasus kitten calling to them, leading them, coaxing them away from danger. But more importantly, leading them away from the wee tins who would enslave them and use them to destroy the Skalzorks. When the hatch was complete, Islak and his mount flew high over the top of the fire spire mountains and into the valley. They landed in the pen, at least three score of them. His entire clan assembled around the fences. He stood there, exhausted and badly wounded in the place of his choosing the place where his life had been defined and forever changed. Wreck emerged from the crowd and walked to him. The crowd fell silent, but for one small crying Skalzork. <laughs> Spared no expense. Plan this shit out to them, beat. <laughs> Wreck bowed to him. This is why you were chosen, he said. Then, turning to the flock herd of unicorn Pegasus kitten kittens, <laughs> second favorite thing I've ever written who were now rolling on the short grass and purring. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> he added, and this is why you are our savior. The entire clan cheered, but Islak felt no joy, just relief. I was not afraid, he said, just like you taught me. He walked across the pen to find his parents, whom he would see now for the first time since his training began, and they had lost both of their children. I was not afraid. The last unicorn, Pegasus Kitten.
Thank you. So um, I said before I uh, told you this turgid tale um, that it played a significant role in my evolution as, as a writer. And the thing is, um, I've been writing narrative nonfiction for years, and I feel very comfortable in it. I feel really comfortable and really confident um, recounting things that happened to me uh, and uh, like uh, sort of commenting on things that people think about in a way that I hope is entertaining and thought-provoking. But for the longest time, whenever I made a story up from nothing, I felt really self-conscious. I felt like, I am a writer. I am writing now. I am making up a story. It is a story with words in it, and things happen. And it was just like the mom from Carrie like stood in the doorway of my room and was like, they're all going to laugh at you. They're all going to laugh at you. And I was like, I had a bunch of knives in here. Fuck. And uh, when John asked me to do this, um, I was so honored to be asked because, like, I love your books so much. And, and like, Patrick Rothfuss wrote for this. And, 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 and who else? And, uh, and Ka Catherine Valente. Rachel Swirsky, who just won a Nebula. I, it's like, and, then, and me. And John. And it's like, really? Um, but I thought, you know what? If I don't say yes, I'm never going to say yes. And I'm never going to do it. And I just decided I'm going to do this. And I am not about to let my friend who has put his faith in me down. So that carried me for like six hours. <laughs> then I ran out of whiskey. And, uh, you know, I... And I couldn't figure out what the story was. And I was out, I was walking with my wife through our neighborhood. I like to walk when I'm stuck on things. It just, I don't know, for, for whatever reason it works, it makes things move around in my brain and stories come together. So I'm out, I'm out walking with Anne and she's like, what are you trying to write? Because I get this kind of like grouchy, you know, fuck you thing when I'm walking, when I'm stuck on a story. <laughs> like, what are you trying to write and why did you ask me to come with you? Um, <laughs> And, uh, and I was describing it, what, what had to happen, and I just started talking about the story. And I said, oh, you know what would be cool is if, like, I just got to get him up to the, to the mount, to the Bent Claw Pass. I had already thought of that. I thought that was cool. And it's going to be, like, I think people are going to expect me to write a story from the Wheatins' point of view. So I'm going to write it from the Skalzork's point of view, and the Wheatins' going to lose, but I don't know how. Oh, eggs come out of the volcano. That makes sense. <laughs> And then they hatch, and the, then they fly around, and whoever leads them wins. That's, oh, I got it. That's the dumbest thing in the world. That is so retarded. Like, that's, that, is so, that, that is so stupid. I would insult red state America if I said what normally comes out of my mouth next. And, and I, so, so I was like, there's... Wait a minute. I'm supposed to just write it like it's fan fiction. So I'm just going to write this thing that I love because I love it. And when I did that, it was like I gave myself permission to have fun. I gave myself permission to have him say, you cannot has. I gave myself permission to like, like use all these kind of like tropes and things that, that I thought would just be fun. And in the end, I have a story that, yeah, it's fan fiction and yeah, it's silly, but it's a solid story. I think it works. And, uh, and I'm really proud of it. And I, I, when I was done, I didn't feel relief. I was like, yeah, what comes next? Yeah. <gasps> <laughs>
And I was talking about this to, to my friend Amy, who uh, is the showrunner on Eureka and, and a friend of mine. And, and, and I was like, and I can't wait to write the next thing. And she goes, dude, today you are a writer. And it was awesome. And it's all because of this. I have a long way to go, you know? I'm like, I'm not under any imp like false impressions that you know, I'm like gonna be amazing or anything. Um, but uh, I'm at that point now where even though I know it's kind of lame, it's okay, and it's just fun to write. And um, I'm really happy about that. And I really appreciate you guys letting me share this uh, with you today, and thank you again for asking me to, to do this. Um, so um, uh, this is for John. And this is for my wife who walked with me when I was grouchy. <laughs> and this now, this, this is for you. This, this is for Memories of the Future Volume 1. For those of you who are not aware, Memories of the Future Volume 1 is the uh, first half of the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation. It is uh, told through my memories of working on the show, hence the title. And it is, uh, it is part episode kind of recap it is part memoir of working on the show. It is part, like, nerdy sci-fi analysis. The entire thing is wrapped up and viewed through the prism of looking through the high school yearbook with equal parts facepalm and nostalgia. <laughs> if you have ever gone through your high school yearbook and gone to, and showed it to someone, right, and said, oh, this was awesome, I remember this, and I can't believe I thought that was cool. Oh, I haven't thought about him in forever. Anyway, that's, that's what it is. Because the reality is, the first season of Next Generation is charitably uneven. And, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and part of just sort of like, I think why this book is, was really fun for me to write was that it's really fun to write these sort of like snarky, comedic, uh, but, but from a place of love kind of recaps of the episodes. Um, and uh, and, and it's, uh, it, it's done really well. People really like it. And uh, this is my favorite chapter in the entire book. Uh, I love it so much that I usually don't, uh, don't do it when I do story time because, like, everybody's heard it. But this is different. <laughs> because there's pictures. <laughs> Can everyone see the pictures? It's mostly you guys over there that I'm worried about. Okay, all right, good. All right, well, feel free to really rudely climb all over someone and ruin their experience so you can get closer to it. Uh, this is from Memories of the Future, Volume 1. This is called Justice, or... <clears throat> or de Death on Planet Sexy Time. You're raising your hand? This, um, if you dim the lights and I do this... Oh, yeah. This is, we, boy, did this just get sexy time. <laughs> All right. Uh, this is Justice from Memories of the Future, Volume 1, by me, Will Wheaton. Original air date, November 9th, 1987. Written by Worley Thorne, nom de plume of Dorothy Fontana. Story by Ralph Willis and Worley Thorne, directed by James L. Conway. Start at 41255.6. After dropping some, and, and now the synopsis of the episode. After dropping some human colonists off in the Sternod solar system, the Enterprise notices a rather nice Class M planet in the nearby Rubicon system, called Rubicon III. Picard sends an away team down to the surface to find out if it's a good place for some shore leave, and they return with some very good news. It's clean, 
It's beautiful. It's populated with friendly humanoids. And they really, really like to do the nasty. <laughs> At the drop of a hat. At the drop of a hat, according to Jordy. Any hat, Tasha says, knowingly. Picard sends a second, larger team down to the planet to see exactly how many hats they're going to need. Because every responsible Starfleet parent would want to send their children down to the galaxy's longest-running planetary orgy, he orders Wesley Crusher to see if the planet is a good place for kids to hang out. After beaming down to the planet, the away team quickly learns three important facts. Number one, the planet's inhabitants are called the Edo. They like to jog everywhere. <laughs> Number two, they are all blonde models, possibly descended from some sort of Maxim FHM breeding program in the late 22nd century. The entire planet is clothed in, in six yards of fabric. The Edo's leaders jog up and they meet the away team, greeting them in the traditional Edo manner. Lingering glances and inappropriately long hugs. <laughs> Counselor Troy says, I'm sensing a lot of boners, Commander. Before the Edo leaders will tell Riker how many people they can bring down from the Enterprise, they suggest that they go ahead and play at love. Rivon, the woman, suggests that Worf play at love with her, because she's fucking insane. <laughs> and has nicknamed her vagina the Shuttle Bay. <laughs> Shuttle Bay 2, I'm sorry. Shuttle Bay 1's closed for maintenance. Oh, come on! Listen, if you're turning on me now, you should just leave. <laughs> Leotor looks at Riker. He jams his truest desires as far back into the closet as they can possibly go and asks Troy if she'll play with him. Just before sexual harassment panda crush... Uh, pa fuck. Just before sexual harassment panda shows up, Wesley Crusher says, Dude, this is bullshit. Either hook me up with a fine piece of Edo ass, or get me away from you creepy middle-aged swingers so I can find it on my own. That, that may not be exactly what he says, but it's certainly what a particular actor who played Wesley Crusher was thinking at the time. So what he actually says is, um, uh, I'm a weenie, and I can't be close, too close to this crazy hot woman who wants to be all Mrs. Robinson to me. Can you please take me away to find some kids my own age so I can get as far away from the boobies as possible? It would really be great if there was like a science project I could work on. 
or some techno babble I could say. I really need to be in my comfort zone, or at least, or at least change into some looser pants. Taken verbatim from the production draft. Rivon and Leotor think that they should run to the council chamber where they can ditch the kid and head inside for a sexy party. When they arrive, Rivon greets Riker, uh, gives Riker the traditional Edo, hey, you totally ran a thousand meters hug and reach around. <laughs> Three teenagers show up, two guys and a girl. Leotor points to Wesley and tells him that he's brought them a new friend to play with. One of the guys is so excited to play with Wesley, he literally bursts into flames. <laughs> I mean, you can tell which one it is, right? <laughs> Wesley and his new pals jog away, and the away team goes inside the council chamber, where the Edo dance. They perform sensual massage, and they show off exceptionally bad late 80s hairstyles. <laughs> Meanwhile, back on the Enterprise, the bridge crew is busy dealing with a mysterious thing they can't see that's sitting off the starboard bow. Apparently, they've never heard Star Trekkin', so the crew doesn't know that whenever anything is off the starboard bow, it's bad news and should be taken seriously. <laughs> so, of course, they assume that it's some sort of sensor malfunction. After, after Data addresses the mysterious object, though, it reveals itself. A deadly floating erector set. Picard orders Jordy to stick his head out the window and tell him what his visor picks up. <laughs> That's actually true in the script. He's like, Jordy, go outside and take a real look at this. Or, go take a real look at it. Really? Like your viewer isn't going to work? <laughs> Listen, what we could do is we could put a malfunctioning holodeck on the ship or a viewer that replicates the main functions of the visor device that, by the way, is portable. Uh, what do you want, Starfleet HQ? Holodeck! Holodeck! <laughs> I was ejected from that meeting. <laughs> Picard orders Jordy to stick his head out the window and tell him what his visor picks up, leading to my favorite moment in the entire episode. The backup tactical officer, who has been overacting in the background of every bridge shot since the episode begins, channels Kevin Pollock's impression of Captain Kirk and says, Sir, my sensors read it as, well, half there, and it does look as if it were partly not there and sort of like it's kind of transparent. Super happy fun time trivia challenge. That character was played by Josh Clark, who went on to play Joe Carey on Voyager. A certain subset of Trekkies have decided that the unnamed character actually was a young Joe Carey. I'm Will, your guide to the world of facts. <laughs> Data doesn't know what it is, but Geordi reports that, after a complete spectral analysis, it's as if it's not really there. Oh, I get it, it's the script from The Last Outpost. <laughs> Well, whatever it is, it's serious about messing with the Enterprise because it sends out that universal symbol of I'm serious about messing with you, a ball of white light, <laughs> which penetrates the Enterprise, cuts off all contact with the away team, and demands in a voice that is deliciously similar to the ghost host in the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland, 
That's also true. <laughs> that Picard explain why the Enterprise is orbiting Rubicon 3 and offers him this chilling challenge. <laughs> of course, Picard then spends 10 pages explaining why humans are trying to colonize the galaxy, why it's important, and how easy it is to take up some time in the script by talking in a gigantic circle about nothing. It irritates the ball of light almost as much as it irritates the audience. So the ball of light shows its displeasure by whacking Data in the head and pinning him to the ground. Let's just look at that for a minute. It was warm on the set that day. Down on the planet, Wesley is jogging around with his new friends. Unlike the adults, who are busy getting their freak on in Plato's retreat. <laughs> Incidentally, don't, don't really spend a lot of time on Google looking for Plato's retreat images. Because as it turns out, two things were not really well taken care of in the 70s. And you see a lot of that when you're looking at pictures of Plato's retreat. The kids are busy showing off their gymnastic skills. One of the Edo boys walks on his hands. Oh, Wesley, you just got served, kid. Oh, wait a minute, Wesley serves back with a cartwheel and a round off, and it's on. In fact, it's so on that the girl gets so hot for Wesley that she asks him if he'll teach her how to play ball. Oh, yeah, you bet, baby. <laughs> Uncle Wesley will teach you how to play ball. Why don't you just slip into this latex bodysuit and put on this wig first, and then we'll play all kinds of ball, you dirty little bitch. Um... Sorry. Look, I'm a dude. Dita Vontis does that to me. <clears throat> Wesley tells them to go get a bat. When they don't know what a bat is, he describes Worf's penis. <clears throat> I want you to look at the two different expressions on his new friends. His friend with the ball, oh, all right, that's okay. And the girl, oh, this was a bad choice. That's canon, by the way. <clears throat> While the kids run off to play ball, Riker wanders around the council chambers, past a lot of Edo who are dropping a lot of hats. And seriously, guys, the Edo, we can smell the Astroglide all the way from here. So you might just want to move to the Cinemax Nebula is all I'm saying. After a conversation with Worf about Klingon sex, that unfortunately forced a lot of fan fiction to be taken out of canon. Oh no, I have to refill my water and leave this on the screen. 
was the least offensive thing I found on the internet. <laughs> After a conversation with Worf about Klingon sex that unfortunately forced a lot of fan fiction to be taken out of canon, Riker tried, really? Re That's fine, forever alone guy, we hate you Will Wheaton. Riker tries to check in with the Enterprise and finds out that his communicator isn't working. He gets the away team all together in one place just in case something funky's going on. When Worf goes to get Tasha, he learns that the Edos spend all their time running around and fucking because they have some rather interesting laws on their planet. If someone breaks a rule in a randomly assigned punishment zone, they're put to death. It kind of sucks, but hey guys, free sex. Meanwhile, in a development nobody saw coming, Wesley unintentionally breaks the law. Oh crap, it's a punishment zone! What are the odds? He doesn't help his case when one of the Edo's police, called Mediators, asks Wesley if he freely admits to the heinous crime of falling on new plants. Wesley stands up straight, deepens his voice a little, and declares, I'm with Starfleet. We don't lie. Oh, Wesley. You may be able to save the ship, but you can't. But you sure can't save this dialogue. <laughs> Riker apologizes for the mess. Wesley apologizes for playing ball. She said she was 18. But before any of the writers can apologize for the dialogue, Tasha shows up to warn them about the Edo's laws. Just a little too late. Like the bishop. After a quick kangaroo court, the mediators get ready to deliver some justice, Edo style. <clears throat> Celebratory riots spontaneously break out all across America. <laughs> By the way, when you Google celebratory riots, the first 15 pages are all of Los Angeles. <laughs> Stay classy, my hometown. But before too many cars can be set on fire, the away team totally cockblocks them and saves Wesley from certain death. Up on the bridge, the glowing ball of light hops off data and communication with the away team is restored. Oh no, the slides are gone! <laughs> Lee, help! Oh, guys, this is going to come to an anonymous end. <laughs> Fucking Sheldon Cooper. Where are the rest of the files? Oh, it's not looking good, guys. <clears throat> Wait a minute. We have my computer. Oh, but it's a Mac. I don't know if this adapter will work. <laughs> Doing live shows. Live shows are awesome, especially when shit gets fucked up. All right, let me double check the... Mm. Let me double check. Remember when we were having fun here? <laughs> Remember when the show was awesome and you were like, what's going to come up next? <laughs> no, it's not. That's, I'm not. No. Th thanks, though. Okay. My wife's trying to help me out again. The PDF, the script, or is it a No, PDF the PDF is the thing. Put up the PDF. Do the PDF. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do that. And go to, like, I think it's number 65. So, how's everybody doing? 
This is my forever alone guy karma, I guess. I don't know. Yes, okay, good, we're back. You, uh, full page, full screen mode. Okay, okay. All right. Thank you, Lee. Talk about nerd world problems. Okay, so let's see. Where, where, where was I? Uh, the away team cock blocks them. That's where I was. The away team cock blocks them and saves Wesley from certain death. I made that. Up on the bridge, the glowing white ball of light hops off of data, and communication with the away team is restored. Riker tells Picard that there's a bit of a problem down on the planet. Picard beams down with the away team, finds out that Wesley has been left in the Edo's custody, and has a long talk with the Edo about law, justice, the death penalty, and other hot-button hot topics that would probably be interesting and thought-provoking if they weren't delivered to a group of half-naked sex fiends who get really petulant when they don't get their way. <laughs> Apparently having to talk about tough issues instead of banging the person closest to them really grinds their gears. <laughs> then, because tackling the issue of capital punishment in two pages of preachy dialogue wasn't enough, Picard asks about the mysterious orbiting object, which Rivon immediately identifies at, wait for it, God. <laughs> oh boy. Wait a minute. God's an erector set. The Edo were made in his image. It all totally makes sense. <laughs> Rivon seems to think it's sort of a New Testament likes to hug you, God. <laughs> Leotor thinks it's more of an Old Testament raining fire down on your head kind of God. Luckily, before things can get too preachy, Dr. Crusher calls down from the Enterprise. Data's woken up from his little ball of light nap and wants to talk with the captain. After extracting a promise that the Edo won't kill Wesley before sundown, Picard takes Rivon with him back to the Enterprise. Once there, he shows her the Edo god. This is, quite honestly, a nice bit of homage to the original series. Whenever Captain Kirk took a hot bay back to the spaceship, he showed her god too. <laughs> Sometimes he showed her a whole pantheon of gods. <laughs> and he never called her back, because that's how Captain Kirk rolled, leaving a trail of broken hearts across the galaxy. <laughs> but the problem is God is pissed. And he shakes the ship until Picard and Rivon, until Picard beams Rivon back down to the planet. Poor Picard. He brought her all the way back to his house, and he didn't get to drop a single hat. Picard and Beverly go to sickbay so they can talk with Data, and on the way we see that Wesley gets all his whining from his mother's side of the family. <laughs> Once in sickbay, Data spews out a whole bunch of stuff about the Edo's God thing, which turns out to be more like Leotor's vision than Rivon's, and has put Picard in quite a bind. While he can totally handle one of those Christopher Pike show trials back at Starfleet HQ if he beams Wesley to safety, that God thing is totally not going to take one of those one beep for yes, two beeps for no bullshit if he interferes. <clears throat> 
After Picard has a long talk with Data, Dr. Crusher comes back, and Picard promises her that he'll save her son. Duh. (laughs) Down on the planet, the sun is about to set, and Trekkies are crossing their fingers. But Picard gives the order to beam up, and they'll have to go back to listing all the different ways Wesley could get killed on Usenet. (laughs) But wait, what's going on? Oh shit, the Edo God has blocked the transporter! The clock is running out. Shit, the clock is running out, but Picard throws a Hail Mary with an impassioned speech to the sky about truth, justice, and the American way. Puppies, ribbons, warm apple cider on a frosty New England morning, and making out at the drive-in with your best girl. The band is on the field, but the Edo God's always been a sucker for a John Cougar Mellencamp song, and he lets them beam away into the end zone. Star Trek wins! Star Trek wins! When they arrive back at the Enterprise, everything returns to normal. Almost. There are now cargo bays filled with hats, and nobody knows what to do with them. (laughs) Thank you. Um, That was as much fun for me to put together as anything has ever been in my entire life. And, and I held back, which I know you don't believe, but is true. Um, here's the obligatory techno babble from the episode. Don't babble, sir. This is before data lore when data still used contractions. Don't babble, sir. I am not aware that I ever babble, sir. It may be that from time to time I have considerable information to communicate, and you may question the way in which I organize it. <laughs> data, explaining to Picard that he does not, in fact, babble. <laughs> Behind the scenes memory. Our exteriors were shot at two primary locations. The scenes where we first beamed down were shot at a water treatment facility in the San Fernando Valley, right under the flight path of the Van Nuys Municipal Airport. There were so many planes flying over us, we just shot straight through the day rather than wait for the sound to be clear before we rolled, and we re-recorded all the dialogue in ADR sessions a few weeks later. I know, it really sucked. I have this involuntary habit as an actor of not talking when there are loud off-camera noises so the sound is clean during editing. This was a really hard place for me to film, not only because I was surrounded by gorgeous nearly nude models with the boobies and the heinies and the I'm in a spandex and I'm 15 mahay gahay boobies. <laughs> because we just kept filming no matter what. It was surprising to me then, as it is now, how tenuous an actor's concentration is. However, the powers that be liked that location so much, we went back there over and over again. It even became the standard location for Starfleet Academy. You alias fans may recognize the building as the one Sydney blew up with all those special forces inside it in season one. Spoiler alert. Um, yes, okay, good. Our second location, where Wesley recklessly plows through the white barrier, was at the Huntington Library in San Marino. In addition to all the flora and fauna, the Huntington also has a very impressive art collection, which includes the Blue Boy. My teacher really wanted me to see that painting, and being 15, I was super unimpressed. However, by bizarre coincidence, in the third season holodeck spectacular, Hollow Pursuits, Wesley is dressed up as the blue boy in Barclay's holodeck fantasy. I impressed exactly zero people with my knowledge of the costume's inspiration, proving that 18th century British art trivia is not the best way to get laid, guys. (laughs) 
This location was also very popular with the powers that be. They liked it so much, they used it again just three episodes later in Haven. Because we used this location so frequently, these two locations were internally compared to Vasquez Rocks, where a lot of the original series episodes were filmed, including Shore Leave and Arena, and now the Star Trek porn parody. That is also a true fact. <clears throat> Quotable dialogue! And I welcome this huge one. Nice planet. Final grade, B plus. That's the end of that. Okay, we can return the lights and uh, I'll put this back on, a, on an appropriate image um, for everyone. Like, what do you think, puppies? No Superman? Angry God, uh, Angry God, Kirk, Angry God, Happy God? F you got, no, meet you, Sheldon, dork, uh, a couple of guys. Ah, uh, here's Edo culture for dummies. Okay, pounding it out. Not okay, everything else. <laughs> I guess we skipped that one. There you go, okay. Um, this is from, sorry. This is from, I'm not really sorry. This is from Memories of the Future, Volume 2. So let's just get, you know what, we'll just stay on this because I think this is probably appropriate. <clears throat> so this is unreleased. This is from Memories of the Future Volume 2. It's still a work in progress. There'll be some parts in this where you can sort of see that it's kind of a work in progress. Um, but this is, uh, this is actually from one of my favorite episodes of, uh, of the first few seasons of Next Generation. It's called 11001001. Um, it's the Binars one. It originally aired on February 1st, 1988, and I'm going to read you a little piece of the synopsis. This was written by Morris Hurley and Robert Lewin, directed by Paul Lynch, uh, Stardate 41365.9. Synopsis. In what is the first truly cinematic moment of the next generation, the Enterprise approaches and prepares to dock at Starbase 74. It's an incredibly beautiful and impressive bit of special effects wizardry. We know that the Enterprise is pretty big, but the Starbase star absolutely dwarfs it. And as the ship pulls into its parking spot, we get a sense of perspective that we haven't seen to this point in the show. People inside the base stop working to watch. As it cruises past the window, uh, something happens. This is where it's still a work in progress. Uh, and then something else happens. A lot of time is spent on what is basically parking the ship in a maintenance bay, <laughs> something sort of held over from Star Trek The Motion Picture. <clears throat> but unlike Star Trek The Motion Picture, it never feels tedious or gratuitous. In fact, it reminds us that we are not only in outer space, but we're in the future, man, where the things that make Wesley weak and strange will be engineered away in the seventh season. <laughs> Just in time for him to spend the rest of his life eating candy out of the traveler's white van. The crew is stopping at Starbase 74 to upgrade the ship's computer to OS 42.7.1. It's an important upgrade. It features some new LCARS icons, slightly better RAM access, and the all-important stop the fucking holodeck from killing you service pack. Which is unfortunately in version 09. 
Picard says that he anticipates a glowing report, which and, and then retcons the first half of the season out of existence when he says that the ship has performed magnificently, performed magnificently beyond anyone's expectations. On the bridge of the Enterprise, everyone is extremely proud of themselves when they dock without crashing. <laughs> it makes you wonder how often that happens. And Picard tells everyone they've done a swell job and they're totally going to get a pizza party. <laughs> he and Riker head down to one of the mooring tubes to meet the maintenance crew. And when the door opens, they see some strange-looking little dudes. And holy shit, evil Picard from the Mirror Universe. Oh, no, wait. No, that's not him. That's Commander Quinteros, the leader of the maintenance crew who will be working on the ship. But, you know, just keep an eye on him. Quinteros if that's his real name, <laughs> says, you're late. We expected you sooner. Picard says, yeah, about that. <laughs> you see, we got held up by this omnipotent alien who put us on trial for every dick move in the history of mankind. Don't worry, though. We nailed it. You're welcome. <laughs> then the fucking kid felt strange but also good and took over the ship, but it's okay. Nailed that, too. Then we had some amok time, found out the Ferengi aren't nearly as scary as we thought, spent some time a zillion, million, bazillion miles away where thoughts become reality, had to leave the planet of naked people who want to fuck everything that moves, and the goddamn kid crushed some plants, survived a crazy Ferengi's blood revenge, got held up again by the omnitent alien douchebag, barely survived a holodeck malfunction, and then we found and blasted into space the robot's evil twin brother when he tried to murder us. But I'm so sorry that you had to put the dinner you made back into the oven to keep it warm here on your nice, safe, fucking starbase. Quintero says, ah, oh, I had no idea. <laughs> Riker says, everything you need to know is in here. And calmly hands him a copy of Memories of the Future, Volume 1. <laughs> uh, this is from uh, Coming of Age, which is another episode that surprised me for a couple of reasons. It surprised me because it was, it's really good, and it's a Wesley episode in the first season. It's like a harmonic convergence that this came together, um, and, uh, and I, I actually sort of, I sort of like that it's called Coming of Age because it really, as I, as I watch this episode again, it feels like the moment when Next Generation kind of like figured out what it was. I mean, it took us a while to grow the beard, but we still had an idea. Like, we're like, oh, got it. Okay, this is what it is. It's not about talking about everything. Anyway, this is from Coming of Age. And uh, for those of you who don't remember, Coming of Age is uh, Wesley's first Starfleet Academy entrance exam uh, show. And, uh, and he goes down to like, take the exam. He's really freaked out about it. He's really nervous about it. At the same time, on the Enterprise, Starfleet has sent up um, some guy who's like an old friend of Picard's and then his little like 
cabin boy um, who's like I- interrogating the hell out of everybody and really grilling everybody and uh, and saying that there's something going on uh, on on the Enterprise, which we find out later was intended to set up the show Conspiracy, which is also uh, uh, really good in my memory. So hope it holds up because I haven't watched, I haven't gotten that far in writing Volume Two yet. Um, but uh, this is. Uh, this is uh, about a third of the way through the first act uh, after Wesley is down at the planet getting ready to take his Starfleet Academy entrance exam. Okay. Down on the planet, Wesley totally gets caught playing him with himself by a really hot girl. <laughs> well, actually... <laughs> actually, he's just looking at a flux-coordinating sensor unit. But let's be honest, this is how Wesley Crusher kills kittens. Her name is Oleana Mirren, and she recognizes Wesley from Rogelian Tiger Beat. <laughs> but before the porn music can start, the other finalists arrive. Tishanik, a Vulcan, who I recall being really funny and entertaining when we weren't rolling, and Mordok the Benzite, who got his own action figure before Wesley did. What the fuck is up with that? <laughs> oh, here, character meant to identify with children. You don't get an action figure in the first season. But hey, guess what? Guy that's on one show and kind of looks like a blue squid thing with a breathing fucking foamer dude, you get to have an action figure. Dicks. Oh, and by the way, Wesley, when we give you an action figure, it's totally going to be the wrong scale to do all that Princess Leia stuff you've been thinking about since you were 10. Anyway, (laughs) Wesley confirms his status as an ultra geek by running away from the cute girl who thinks he's cute so he can hump Mordok's leg. Apparently, he has Mordok's action figure at home. Once again, before the porn music can start, Officer Chang, who sounds enough like Mr. Sulu to make you wish he'd say, oh my, (laughs) just once... comes in and tells everyone, this test is going to kick you and your baby makers. (laughs) I wish he had more dialogue because I like doing that voice. Hello. Back on the Enterprise, Remick is on the bridge making sure Data got the memo about putting new covers on the TPS reports and ensuring that Jordy knows that they're going to need him to go ahead and come in this Saturday. Okay. <laughs> when he tries to take Riker's red stapler away, that's a bridge too far. Riker storms into the ready room and demands that Picard tell him just what the hell is going on. Well, what unfolds is actually a really fantastic scene. Even though it's brief, it tells us a lot about the relationship between these two men and how each one feels about his commitment to the ship, the crew, to Starfleet, and to each other. A weak writer or weak actors would have made this scene about yelling at each other. But you can feel the tension between them as the actors work to keep their emotions in check and the writers use the audience's ignorance of Remick's true motives to build sympathy with the characters. By the time Riker storms out of the ready room, we're as suspicious of Remick as they are and the stakes have been raised considerably. When Remick wants to interview Riker, we cheer when Riker tells him to go fuck himself. 
Back in the testing facility, the finalists finish the first round of questions. They all answer correctly, except for Oleana, who can't get her answer in before time runs out. She stands up and says, math is hard. I wish I could major in shopping and boys. <laughs> Wesley says that she shouldn't be so hard on herself, because he sure would like to be. <laughs> That's not even in here. I, I don't understand that at all. Uh, <clears throat> even though it looks like everything in the world comes easily to him, he really does have to work hard from time to time. Just not very often, not when it matters, and certainly never in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> You're lucky you're cute, Wesley Crusher, she says, or you could be really obnoxious. <laughs> Wesley turns to Mordock and goes, Hey, Mordock, did you hear that? She thinks I'm cute. <laughs> Girls in the audience go, duh, <laughs> while guys wait for their modems to connect to Usenet. Back on the bridge, Riker apologizes to Picard for harshing his mellow, but Picard tells him that Remick's harshing everyone's mellow, and not to worry about it. Just then, Remick shows up to harsh their mellow. He drags Riker into the ready room for a mellow harshing interview. Once alone, Remick wants to know if Picard has ever falsified a log entry. And then we see Remick asking Jordy all about the events of the Naked Now, followed by him asking Troy about the events of the battle. In each scene, he's questioning Picard's competence, and it's starting to look like Picard is under investigation. But for what? <laughs> Before we can really get a good montage going, though, we cut to an empty holodeck, where we find Wesley Crusher leaning up against the wall, wistfully gazing at a pad. Before the porn music can start, Worf interrupts him, <laughs> then offers to leave. Wesley tells him that he thought he wanted to be alone, but it turns out that he'd actually like Worf to stick around. Now the porn music starts. <laughs> As the seeds for hundreds of thousands of fan fiction stories are planted with just a few words and a guy delivering a pizza. <laughs> All kidding aside, it's another surprisingly good scene where we learn a great deal about Worf and something about Wesley, too. Wesley is freaking out about the upcoming psych test. He tells Worf that the psych test will be based on his deepest fear, and he doesn't know what his deepest fear is. So he was trying to come up with some terrifying images to put into the holodeck. He says, what should I try? I already went through the math test where I didn't know the answer. Then I did the physics test where I didn't know the answer. The astronomy test where I didn't know the answer. And sex ed. Worf tells him that Starfleet is really good at analyzing psychological profiles to uncover these things. Wesley says that he thought Klingons weren't afraid of anything. And Worf tells him that it's very difficult for him to rely on anyone, especially for his life. Wesley asks Worf how he got over his fear, and Worf tells him that he hasn't. Whoa, that's like Kadeep Gokcho, Worf. <laughs> that's how Klingons talk to each other when they're high. They made a targ bong head skull. Woo! Hook <laughs> <Look> neck. <coughs> I don't know. I know as much about Klingons as I know about stoners, which is zero. Uh, so jumping to the end of the episode. So Wesley, of course, Wesley blows it. 
Wesley, like, uh, uh, he, he barely, like, gets through the, the psych test, where, where they make him think he's going to die, because that's awesome. And, uh, and then Wesley, whose whole goal in life is to get into Starfleet Academy. It's what he wants more than anything. It's what he's been groomed for. In the, in the final test, uh, when he could, like, just breeze through it and, and lock it all down, leaves his test to go help the only other person in the room who has a possible chance at all of beating him. It's, it's like you're in the World Series, it's the bottom of the ninth inning, and the catcher goes, here comes a curveball. Oh, thank you, I really appreciate that. <laughs> and that's the only way the Dodgers will ever win. <clears throat> uh, so, um, Wesley goes back to the Enterprise, and uh, he's, um, he's sad. Sad face, sad times, Wesley. <clears throat> I know, it's awful. Um, he's in the observation lounge, which is where you go to feel sad and sorry for yourself before they build the 10 forward set, because it doesn't exist yet. <laughs> it's the only set with a lot of windows in it. So Wesley's uh, wistfully feeling sorry for himself and looking out the window, looking into deep space, thinking, where am I going to be in five years? <laughs> Picard walks in. Wesley says that he failed the test, he failed Picard, he failed the Enterprise, he failed his hairdresser. <laughs> Picard tells him to chill the fuck out because the only person he's really competing against is himself. Now, if I can take a personal moment here, uh, this uh, saying I'm taking a personal moment makes more sense in the context of the book. I really wish I'd been paying closer attention to this dialogue when we were filming the scene instead of wondering if we were going to rap early enough for me to go to my friend's house so I could play Car Wars. <laughs> Because it's really great advice. It's delivered with tremendous compassion and simplicity and is essentially the conclusion that I reached after years of hanging on the proof to everyone that quitting Star Trek wasn't a mistake cross, lovingly detailed in my book, Just a Geek, which makes a fantastic gift. <laughs> Picard then tells Wesley a secret. He also failed his first Starfleet Academy entrance test. And if Wesley tells anyone he told him that, Picard will give Wesley, uh, sorry, Picard will give Trekkies their Christmas wish and put Wesley in the airlock. <laughs> Admiral Quinn comes in and he says that he wishes he could change Picard's mind and convince Picard to uh, leave the Enterprise and become Commandant of Starfleet Academy, which really has no purpose at all other than tying the A and B stories in the episode together. Picard says uh, that uh, he really appreciates the offer, but he belongs on the Enterprise. Up until this point in the season, the audience hasn't been so sure, but after this appropriately titled episode, it's hard to disagree. The end. Thank you. Um, it's, a, it's a work in progress. I hope to have it finished before the end of the year and um, certainly before we're all back here again next year. Um, so thank you for letting me sort of like share this new stuff with you. I was scared to death because no one has heard that except uh, my friend Andrew and like nobody. So um, thanks for not uh, booing me. Um, <laughs> you know, like you did with, the, with, with, uh, with this. Where is it? There we go. No, there. No, you were fine with this. That's the thing that has a problem. I still don't understand that. Um, oh, it's all over. It's too bad. You don't get to see Worf wearing something. <laughs> You're welcome. 
uh, my time is just about up, and I want to get out of here so that y'all have some time to eat before you go to see. If all of you are going to see Hammer Improv, but uh, um, thank you. Before before I go, I, I thought I might entertain a couple of questions. If anybody had any before I, before I left, yes. My husband and I have been wondering for a long time what part do you sing in the Mystery Men song? <laughs> that is an excellent question. What part do I sing in the Mystery Men song? Uh, the internet has failed you, as the internet has failed me so many times. There is actually a jazz singer named Will Wheaton, Will with two L's, and uh, he, he sang the song for Mystery Men. And I know, everybody thinks it's me. Unfortunately, his record company doesn't, and I don't get any of his checks. Yes? When am I going to do a podcast? Uh, a, po a podcast for, you mean my Radio Free Burrito podcast, or the Acquisitions Incorporated podcast, or the Memories of the Future podcast. God, I do a lot of podcasts. Don't I do enough for you? And I just did the Nerdist podcast. What are you complaining about? I give you everything for free, except this, and that's what you get. Anyway, sorry. Uh, right. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, Chris and I are really good friends. I knew about the BBC thing uh, about a week before everybody else did, and I was like, come on, make it happen, make it happen, make it happen. Um, so, yeah, Chris and I have, have talked about it. I probably shouldn't say more than that. Uh, yes? I can actually tell you right now how I maintain my luscious beard. I am but a host organism to keep this alive. It's, 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 it's Riker's beard. It's all him, that wasn't me, that's all, that's all him. The trimmer setting is number five. I feel that grooming is extremely important. Um, and uh, I use the Dermalogica uh, face scrub in order to exfoliate and prevent unnecessary oils from building up. Um, and I comb it often <laughs> with a comb made from a dinosaur fossil <laughs> that is held by a pygmy who's not ever allowed to leave my house and subsists only on guava fruits and that's how I do it. <laughs> but you're welcome to try. Is there any more evil? I, you know, I think a lot of evilness came from me tonight. <laughs> There's a real good possibility that there will be more evil Will Wheaton on the Big Bang Theory. Um, <laughs> I don't know for sure, but. But I love working with them, and uh, uh, they seem to like working with me, and the audience seems to enjoy it as well. So, like, all those things kind of go together, so it makes a lot of sense. Um, so, hopefully, sometime in the next season. Yes? Was, uh, what we, uh, sorry, was Wesley Crusher messing around with nanites and uh, crashed the Sony network? <laughs> was Wesley Crusher messing around with nanites and crashed the Sony network? No, the thing was, he had to make a bunch of nanite-sized anonymous masks. C14. I totally knew that and didn't have to look to somebody to tell me. Here's 
the thing about Sony's network crash that really like grinds my gears. Sony puts the most obnoxious, intrusive, fuck you in the ass DRM in the world on everything, but your personal data, that's fine, a store in plain text. As long as you can't use your stuff, that's all that matters. And really, and their big apology, their huge apology, they're like, oh, we're so sorry, please come back and use us again. We're going to give you a game you probably already have, or a month of a service that if it's going to be of any use to you at all, you have to subscribe to again. No, fuck you. <laughs> Yes? Did you get that speech to Kevin <laughs> No, who's that? Who's Kevin Pereira? Oh, from Attack of the Show. I don't get Attack of the Show because I'm a direct TV customer. <laughs> really? That's scandalous? <laughs> I am learning a lot of things today. I actually saw that argument originally formulated on Reddit where I spend all of my time. <laughs> um, and it was actually, uh, what, what started me thinking about it was someone did like Scumbag Steve as, a, as the Sony network. So it's like a PlayStation 3 with the hat. <laughs> it's really funny, you can find it online. I'll probably take two more and then I'm gonna uh, let y'all leave. Yes? How do, you, how do you Um, she asked how I, tra how, I can, how I can travel around the world and like go to all these different countries and maintain kind of a normal existence. Um, that is my normal. I mean, I know that sounds weird, but it's true. Um, when I started working on Eureka, it was really hard for my wife and me because I was gone for three, four weeks at a time and it was really easy for me to sort of like settle back into that because that's normal for me. I've been doing this my whole life. It's really normal for me to travel for a really long time and be away and I'm, I think, well, I can talk on the phone and you can come visit, but she had never ever experienced that before. And uh, it, was, it was a real challenge for both of us to like, how are we gonna do this? Like, how are we gonna like still feel close to each other and, and, and be able to talk all of the time and, and like hang out and stuff? Um, I was telling someone the other day that my, uh, I'm, I'll be 39 in July, and uh, a lot of my friends are uh, at, at a point in their life now where they've been married for a really long time. Um, and they've, a lot of my friends are starting to have divorces. And some of my friends are sort of settling into like the, the sort of like marriages that everybody's like, you guys would be a lot happier if you weren't together. Or, or you know, it's just like all about the kids. And, and uh, our friends look at us and they're like, it's weird, like, why do you guys like each other so much? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and I'm really lucky. My wife is my best friend. And, and, and we, well, like, kind of do everything together. And um, uh, the way that I can really keep this normal, like, normalcy in my life is that Anne keeps me grounded and, and is a normal person. And we used to joke that we we're in a mixed marriage. Like, I'm a geek and she's a normal person. And, and uh, I think that that really plays a huge part of it, in, in it. And also, like, we live in a world now where we're so connected to each other everywhere we go that when I went to Germany for FedCon and didn't have a phone, it was weird. 
I reached for my phone several times to like look something up or like figure out where I was. And I was like, this is incredibly weird. I, th- I'm going to go use a fax machine. <laughs> that was a really long, unsatisfying answer. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, you and then one more. I released a, a, a collection of short stories called The Day After and Other Stories, like I think last year. And then earlier this year, I released another short story called Hunter. And um, they're like, you can find them from my website or from willwheatonbooks.com. <laughs> you can also get them. And people are holding up their books. That's awesome. You guys really make me feel cooler than I am. Um, uh, or they're like in the Kindle store and stuff. Um, and it's next to you. And. Um, <laughs> um, uh, like I said when I wrote uh, Last Unicorn Pegasus Kitten, uh, it's, I'm still learning, I'm growing, and, and uh, uh, I have this, this, this time now where I'm so excited to write this story that I've got pretty much broken down in my notebook. I just have to take it from notes into a story, but I'm so busy working on Eureka that I don't have time to do it. We're off for most of June, and I really hope that I can at least do a first draft of it then. And it's a really... It feels really good to me because I've always wanted to write stories and I was so afraid to publish them. I mean, I've got lots of stuff that I I don't think will ever be published. Um, But but that I have this, like, anticipation, like, I can't wait to finish this. I can't wait to share it with people. I can't wait to let it go. uh, It feels strange but also good. So soon is another way of answering your question. (laughs) Yes, you, sir, in the back. The Gallifrey T-shirts. Uh, there, uh, one exists at the moment, and I own it. Two exist. I own it. Joel has one. Um, uh, the T-shirt that he's talking about is, is a T-shirt that came from this idea that I had. Um, a friend of mine uh, created a poster. You know the keep calm and carry on? It looks like that. You know the keep calm? It was great. It's like a laser. You're all cats, and I was a laser pointer. Um, so um, like, that was awesome. All right, I'll feed you, I'll feed you, fuck! And there's another one right there. Ah, batteries have died in my laser pointer. So um, I have a a friend who took that um, keep keep calm and carry on poster, and he uh, replaced the crown with a bunch of spanners, and it says, get excited and make things. And I thought that was such a great idea that I adopted it as a philosophy. And uh, I constantly get excited and make things. And, well, I get excited and I tell Joel, hey, I have this idea. And Joel goes, let's make something. And then we do. And it's great. Um, in addition to being living in a time where we're like have this, all this communication and, and, and all of these, abil- these abilities to, to like stay connected to each other, creative people can make things and the only thing that it costs you is the time involved because we can do things that are on demand and we can do things that are like pay what you want and, uh, and, and, and we have these, this great distribution method known as the internet uh, to like get things out to people. So it's so easy to just like get excited and make something and then put it out there and get it going. And uh, I, I did this, this, this t-shirt idea. I thought that it would be really great if Gallifrey had a team, if Gallifrey had a university and they had a team, they would be called the Fighting Time Lords. Right? That makes sense. So I emailed Joel, and the subject of the email is, I have an idea. 
And that thread is like a thousand messages long because every time I email him, it's just that. I have an idea. It's, it's probably in Joel's how long is this going to take me to do file um, in, his, in Gmail. <laughs> I have an idea. Oh, my God, let's do this. No, let's do this. Oh, my God, let's do this. That's pretty much how it goes. So the first, the thing that I said to Joel was, you know, it would be great if it was like, you know, like, just like a crest, like, like, a, like a real dour university crest like Oxford's or something like that. And he was like, I have a much better idea. <laughs> and I was like, yes, let's do that. So Joel drew the 11th doctor in his little fez holding his a sonic screwdriver, which I'm not a big fan of, sorry. And, uh, and, and like this, like the little Notre Dame mascot. So it's like a parody of the mascot, and it's a parody of, of that, and it says, University of Gallifrey fighting Time Lords. And uh, um, we finished this like four days ago, yeah. and uh, I have some prints for sale at my uh, booth, which is C14, which I remembered. <laughs> and you can get the t-shirts online at, at a website called Sharksplode. Sharksplode, like how can you forget that? It's, what a, it's the noise a shark makes when it explodes. <laughs> Uh, and if you go to Sharksplode, you can get them there, um, and, uh, and I'm, I'm real excited about them. But I don't have them here. I have one here, and you can buy it if you want. It's $50,000. <laughs> I only accept cash. <laughs> Joel's is only $25,000, so well, you're undercutting me, dick. Anyway, listen, um, I want to say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for giving me some of your time. Thank you for buying a ticket to come and see this. I hope you had a good time. I had so much fun putting this together for you guys. Have a great, great, great convention. And don't be a dick. Good night. Hi, folks. This is the Emperor. I'm here to remind you to listen to The Emperor's Court every Saturday from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern right here at vtwproductions.com. That's The Emperor's Court, your three-hour break from Internet porn.